This is Carl Michael with Open Kennedy, and you're listening to Talk That Talk, Uncensored with Joyce and Brent. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talk That Talk Uncensored. I'm JoJo, and Brittany's here with me, too. Say hi, Brent. Hey, guys. <laughs> Today, we have a very, very special guest. His name is Carmichael Stokey Kennedy, and he goes by Stokey. So for the sake of this episode, is it okay if, I call you, if we call you Stokey? Yes, feel free. Okay. So a little bit about you. Just quickly, because in this episode, we'll really get to know you, your backstory and everything. But Stokey is the president and CEO of the Stokey Project. He's worked as a marketing executive for Shoe City Brands, has partnered with award-winning artist and entrepreneur Jay-Z with Rock Nation, where he cultivated a music platform reflective of Baltimore and is an internationally recognized published author. So without further ado, Stokey. (laughs) Welcome. You did a good job. I like that. <laughs> you feel really important. I like that. <laughs> you're, 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 kind of, you're kind of a big deal. Yeah, sure. you're impressive. Background on how I met Stokey. You know, I live in Baltimore. So in Baltimore City, Stokey is well known. Everybody knows him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in quotations, yes. Knows of you, <laughs> um, has heard of you. Um, and so you're just like, let's just say like a public figure, you know, um, you have a big following on social media. And then at the same time too, you're very much like, um, a part of the whole Baltimore community. I feel like, you know, and so we met like three years ago at the time you were doing different events and there were shows and, you know, with your background, he does a lot with music and he was giving, he, and he continues to, but, um, at the event platform for local artists to um, showcase their talent and so I had gone there and from there you know we met and then he's one of my friends I I would call friends and I don't use that word like you know because I I always hate when people like people always like that's that's my friend that's my friend you know those people that have like 10 million friends but um like I said he's very well respected here in the city you know so in order to kind of do something fun, so Brittany is going to do like a little like icebreaker game. Icebreaker. Really <laughs> you just have to answer um, the question really fast or Brittany can give one. Yeah, so it's kind of like the lightning round questions. So I'll be just hitting them to you as you answer them. Yeah, so whatever I think comes to mind. You should answer them. Yeah, so the, so the first thing that comes to mind, maybe like within five seconds. Um, yeah. So it'll be a series of like 20 questions. Okay, cool. Okay, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, first question. East or west side? West. (laughs) Boiled or fried crab cake? Boiled. Favorite motto? Um, I forgot her name. She, she. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, he did it. No, favorite motto. (laughs) Not motto. Oh, sorry. Never give up. A favorite rapper? Jay Z. Most underrated artist? Um, Lil Skies. No, YBS Cole and Lil Skies. Both. What's your ideal date? My ideal date? Mm -hmm. Watching movies. Favorite hobby? Um, Reading. Word or phrase you hate to use? I quit. 
most underrated part of fatherhood? Um, spending time. Favorite cuisine slash food? Ah. <laughs> um, well, Cajun rice. <laughs> Red or blue? Red. Are you a morning or night person? Morning. Can you be friends with your ex? Yes. Beach or mountains? Mm, mountains. Country or city life? City. Who says sorry first, men or women? Say what first? <laughs> sorry. Who says sorry first? Men. <laughs> men or women? Huh. We'll, co- we'll come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you admire the most? My son. My kids. If a movie was made of your life, who would play you? It is Elba. Mm, okay. Good one. <laughs> what is the first thing you notice about the opposite sex? Um, booty. And lastly, describe yourself in three words. Oh, good heart thinker. Sweet. So that ends the lightning round. So um, I know earlier you, yeah, that was really fun. And I will definitely get back to that question about who apologizes (laughs) first because I do not agree. (laughs) Most people who could, in relationships anyway, if you were talking about that, as pertaining relationships, most men, according to statistics, commit adultery and infidelities, and they're the ones that have to apologize. Uh-huh. So they got to apologize first. They're the ones that do you know, wrong first, according to statistics. Mm-hmm. That's why okay. Okay, that's fair. That's a, that's right. a, what is that politically correct answer? Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> sorry that they step on his shoes. Like, what? I mean, men seem to be the most aggressive out of the two, and just based on the nature of relationships and how things seem to unfold, men seem to mm-hmm. be condescending at times so i think when they get caught in a uh entanglement they always <laughs> entangle <laughs> no um thank you though um thanks for having me um and congratulations for you guys on your show podcast and so forth um thank you I, I i think i consider myself a regular guy born and raised in a section of baltimore called reservoir hill better known as white rock city um, grew up in a single parent household because my dad wasn't there. And then my mom got married later on, I think when I was like about seven or eight years old until my stepdad went away to prison. Um, I love school, I love sports. Me and my, my mom had two kids and she had my older sister and we had a real tight bond, still do to this very day. Um, but for some reason, all the dysfunction that was happening in my household, I still had fun as a child. I still explored different horizons, different things. Um, and I excelled in school when I went anyway. And um, I always wanted to be something other than an athlete or, or entertainer. And mm-hmm. growing up, I had a, a very uh, fondness for, for law. And I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And um, as I got older, I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. But I still practiced it, you know, by default later on in my life when I had went through a terrible transition. But um, growing up, it was fun. Um, I lived in a community where though everybody loved each other. It, um, it was one of those urban environments where people looked out for each other. It wasn't 
violent. It wasn't um, like a lot of poverty back then, although the circumstances and some things that I involved myself in was inescapable and then some things were inexcusable. But for the most part, um, I had a very good childhood minus the dysfunctional things that happened to my mom and, you know, growing up with uncles who drank, who, um, who was addicted to alcohol or drugs. But, you know, so I always tell people, you know, for me, you know, I remember those dark days, but I think when I look back and I try to define them, they made me who I am today. So I look at it, whereas though I had to go through those, those turmoils to be the man I am today. Um, again, I played sports. Uh, you know, I had a lot of fun. You know, back then you could, you could do all type of things like sneak on a bus. I mean, a regular child, you know, but some things, mm -hmm. some things people would escape and avoid because I grew up fast. So at 10 years old, um, my biological father, he would come in and, out, in and out of my life very often. And one particular time or one day, I seen him and I remember the year as clear as day, 1980. And I mean, he told me to hold some drugs and stuff like that. So he, he maybe wasn't mentally prepared to be a father, but I was prepared to be a son. And that day I remember mm -hmm. him asking me to do some things that no father should ask a son to do, right? But um, mm -hmm. as I grew older, I forgave him because I mean, sometimes people don't know the damage they do and the trauma that they inflict on their children. So, um, and that mistake he made may have hindered my growth in many ways, but today I, I look back at it, you know, as just another chapter in my book. It's almost like um, a moment where, do you feel like it's like a moment where like, you feel like your innocence was lost? I feel like in our childhood sometimes, for myself, like I look back and I can re remember something where it's like, if someone exposed me to something and it's almost like my innocence was lost because I didn't view mm -hmm. certain things the same way. I, yeah, I do it and, and it's so funny because like, um, money was, wasn't scarce back then because people found ways to survive whether they were street vendors, you know, or entrepreneurs or hustlers. So um, I, I do think that the mindset of a 10-year-old kid at that time was being obedient. You know, I don't look at me as being disobedient. Right. So I thought I was doing yeah. what they asked me to do. So right. as I grow older, as I grew older and now I look back, of course, that may have been one of those situations where as though if he'd have asked me to hold a gun, right, I, could re I would remember that the same way as he did because I know now there's something wrong, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you know, again, like I said, that was just one of the many things that happened in my life that not necessarily derailed me, but exposed me to a life that I would one day become good at, you know? And I think that was where, you know, you know some people try to alienate the truth. Like, okay, where did this come from, right? I know exactly where it came from. Earlier you talked about your upbringing. My question to you is in your journey, I know in a previous uh, interview you did I saw that you talked about being incarcerated and um, can you tell us a little bit more about your transition um, from being incarcerated to then building your own brand well well um, when I was incarcerated I mean I disagreed with you know even the things that happened in the preliminary stages but as a man you gotta um, hold yourself accountable and be responsible for your decisions as well as the consequences to your actions so I went away for 12 years. While I was in prison, I kept thinking about, you know, what I would do to rebuild my life and stabilize myself when I got back out. And I wrote books. I had business plans. I wanted to invest in my, my, my children a little more by spending quality time, raising them to be better than me, and making different decisions. Mm -hmm. 
And when I came home, I was already prepared to succeed. I didn't know what I was going to do exactly, but I knew I, what I wasn't going to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I came home, I knew that I had um, a fetish for doing film and movies and then music and entertainment. And again, I said I had wrote several books, so I was distributing my books in the local um, uh, bookstores. And I started working with children. And I knew that um, okay. my passion was not necessarily add up to my purpose, you know. And then when my purpose met my passion, that's when everything started to click, you know. And um, I, I don't really consider myself successful yet because my friends are not where I want them to be. So when my friends mm-hmm. catch up and we are doing things together, then I can think that would be a successful puzzle. Right now, so many different pieces missing. So I'm just one piece mm-hmm. of the puzzle. But um, gotcha. the transition that I made was by choice, but it was by force because people force me to change. Sometimes they force you to change, you know? Um, it's like if you get in a car accident and you don't have your seatbelt going, you almost lose your life. The next time you get in the car, you're going to wear that seatbelt. You know what I'm saying? So right. For me, it's like I, I knew I couldn't go back to my past because I didn't like how I was treated. I didn't like how it separated me from my children. And mm-hmm. the little things I like to do, I couldn't, you can't see a tree, you can't take a walk, you wanna take a walk. You can't see beautiful women, you can't do a lot of things. So I didn't wanna um, put myself in that situation again. Right, so what would you say was the hardest lesson learned? For, for me, it was being away from my children, you know, like, cause I, for me, I could have been a rat and would have changed my behavior. Because if you remove me from the problem and I dissect it, right, and I can look at it from what it is, I'm gonna make a very um, conscious decision of what not to do. You know, I'm not gonna be redundant in my behavior, especially if it's negative. So, mm-hmm. the thing that hurt the most for me was not being away from the city or the streets or people. It was not being there for my children because mm-hmm. I love them so much. So, that was the biggest part for me. You know, holidays and even though I ain't even celebrating holidays, but not being there with them to see them celebrate certain things affected me in ways where when I came home, I knew I was going to do everything right. So I never will leave them again. So when do you think was that turning point for you? Like from your life right before you went to prison, like did it happen in prison or was it like right before where? No, I mean, again, I I mean, you know, everything happens for a reason if you ask me, but I I probably would never have changed if if I would never went to prison. Because I was successful, you know, why would I turn mm-hmm. that light off if, if, if everything is so bright, right? So mm-hmm. in a way, I realized the damage I only, not only caused myself, but losing my mind, you know, um, and being away from my children, those things forced me to change my narrative into a whole different perspective. Like, okay, I knew I was more than that. I knew I could do more than that. I just needed the platform and opportunity. So when I came home, I took advantage of every opportunity that was presented to me. How were you like building that plan while you were incarcerated in order for you to like come home? Like, did you have support? Did you have like family and friends or? I had a few, I had a few friends, just a few who stuck by me the whole entire time. And whatever I decided to do, they were a part of that. Um, but I evolved and, and, you know, when you look at, um, you know, evolution and how things, you know, change consistently and constantly due to technology and, and people who are uneducated or inexperienced, I knew that there was a great area in my life where the things I wanted to do, I didn't have any information or knowledge about. So people who were projected to be, you know, whether it be successful or um, very knowledgeable in certain areas, I found a way to get connected with them and then use my relationships to help propel myself 
know, in a positive direction or even on that same platform. So I had a few people, but more importantly, it was just me. I just was determined to show people what they give up on because when I was away, a lot of people gave up on me. I mean, I had a lot of time, I understand that, but the way in which they gave up affected me. It wasn't that they, you know, say, okay, you know, I'm be here for you no matter what. It just they did some things that, you know, that affected me when I was away. And I told myself when I get out, you know, I would not literally kill nobody, but I would kill them with success, like, you know, mm -hmm. hypothetical way, you know, let them know that I'm someone you should never give up on. And, uh, and I think to this day, I still feel like I got something to prove to myself that I'm more than what I was 20 years ago. Most definitely. So I think for the listening audience, for those that don't know, um, Stokey ran for Baltimore mayor. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what really prompted you to run for mayor of Baltimore City? Well, I mean, well, it, it really is funny because, um, you know, I know the position was mayor, but I was running for change. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of my ambitions were driven high on expectations to give young folk an opportunity to see what change looked like. Again, you spoke about my past. I did some things in my past I'm not proud of, but it perpetuated a negative narrative that caused other people who came after me to lose their life, their freedom, and their health. And I wasn't proud of that. So going those moments where I was by myself seeking atonement and forgiveness, I knew that my words had to match my actions when I came home. And I wanted to get back and change the complexion and the culture of my community by doing something positive and giving these kids some hope and giving them something else to look forward to other than crime and violence. And growing up in the city of Baltimore, that's prevalent. Violence and crime and poverty is like husband and wife. So one day I was seeing my son in school and I had decided to move to LA to further my music career, or business career in music. And my son questioned me as to why I was leaving. And I was like, you know, well, Baltimore changing and there's a lot of things in LA I want to be attached to to be successful or continue to be successful. And he questioned me as if I was leaving because of the murder rate. And I felt at that time, you know, a mm -hmm. six-year-old kid, you know, who asked me a question that was kind of true, I felt like I failed him because now he traumatized by the events that happened in the city and I did my best to protect them. So I felt like I failed him. So I called my friends that was in LA waiting for me to come and I asked them, um, you know, what they think about if I stayed in Baltimore and fought a little harder for change, you know? And they said, well, if you leave Baltimore, you'll be miserable. But if you stay in Baltimore, leave. So the mayor thing wasn't about becoming mayor. I honestly did not want to be mayor. I did not. I prayed mm -hmm. to God that he'd give me the platform to get my message across to people who didn't think I could do it for one and two, who didn't think it could be done. So now I'm praying that someone else will pick up the baton and go further who wants to be a politician. I don't like politicians because sometimes they lie intensely and sometimes they let people down by default, but it affects people in ways where as though you can't really recoup, right? And I wanted to be a change agent. Now, if God said, well, I want you to win, then I didn't have no, no, no choice but to follow his order. But I did the minimum to win in terms of messaging, um, connecting resources. I just wanted a particular demographic to know that this is what change looked like. And you guys don't have to look no further than me because I've been through most of not everything they was going through at that time, whether it be mom using drugs, dying from them, father not being in your life, going to prison, everything they could think of I went through, but I turned it around. Now, everybody might not be so successful in making those same decisions or the same turnarounds that I made, but at least they can see it can be done. So my primary mm -hmm. 
my primary objective was this to show people what change looked like. And, you know, mm-hmm. the bad part about that is, you know, a lot of people, it went over their head. You know, a lot of people thought that I was really trying to be a politician and, you know, and I, and I know a lot about politics, but I'm more effective outside. You can't change the system you depend on until you become independent of that system. And if I was to go into that system, I would lose my voice and my platform to bring change, whether it be, um, you know, systemic oppression, racism, you know, you know, mm-hmm. whole bunch of other things that, you know, affect us on a daily basis. During my time living in Baltimore, it reminded me a lot of home. You know, people, you think of Baltimore and Virgin Islands and they're like two opposites, right? But um, we have high poverty rates here. As you know, that has a direct correlation with the crime rate. So what are some of the gaps, you know, in the current administration and how they're addressing that in the city? I mean, you know, we, we have had a political problem in Baltimore for the last five years with politicians being corrupt, um, mm-hmm. being denounced, they resigning, and even with the police department. I mean, so we never really had a steady government that I can think they had an opportunity to have a good four-year run and consistently bring change to our city with people who know how it works. The disconnect to me is we got politicians who don't know um, how things work in terms of a particular demographic of people, particularly the ones you spoke about. Baltimore has, I think, 28, 26%, 26.8% poverty. And you just alluded mm-hmm. to the fact that poverty and crime are, are very relatable. Um, and I think the thing that we need the most is someone who understands or who can understand why some of these decisions are being made by these criminals. Like, you know, again, I said earlier, some things are inescapable. When you live in poverty and now you got a 9% unemployment rate, which is 56% over the national average, that's going to affect people in ways where as though they want to do what they got to do to survive. And right. I understand that. I, I, know, I know why these young men are hopeless and desensitized and traumatized by what they see every single day because they wake up every day and look at a vacant building they don't see palm trees, so why would they be happy about where they live? Why would they want to invest in that? Right. If you give them something to invest in, a lot of them would. They don't see mm-hmm. it, and it hasn't come to them by, by way of their father or their brother, so why would they think it's going to come to them? We're talking about generational curses. So um, mm-hmm. what I wanted to do is just show people that, listen, with relationships and resources, things will gradually change, you know, because it happened mm-hmm. to me. I mean, I changed because I was given the opportunity, right? If you give these kids the opportunity to change and you get them and you invest in them, and I mean, it, it can go long and far. Whatever you, if whatever people invest in, normally you see a return. And people- Most definitely. Right, mm-hmm. and people invest in things they love. Like you have a child, you're gonna invest in it. You have a puppy, a pet, you're gonna invest in that, right? But for some reason, the inner city hasn't been invested in, and you can look at the difference between the inner harbor and the inner city. Why does mm-hmm. be- still look like this and that look like that. And the people with money, if it's not talking about gentrification, they're not going to invest in the inner city. You know what I'm saying? It's going right. to fall apart. So. And Baltimore right. is so, like I always say this, it's such a black and white city. And it's almost like day and night, like wherever you go, you know where the spots are. Like you said, Inner Harbor, Fed Hill, where mm-hmm. that's like the place where it looks completely different to what the actual city is and the vibrant, you know, of the people. Like, what do you think should be like the top priorities for, um, you know, people in power in Baltimore, like politicians or? I mean, I think it all, to me, it starts with education. The reason why I say that, because if you look at the, um, the loopholes, and you look at, um, the disconnect between those who got good jobs and those who don't. 
most of the people can't get a good job because they don't qualify, because they don't have education. And they don't understand or comprehend that language, right? And I'm not saying in terms of speaking, I'm trying to get the technology, you know, and artificial intelligence has superseded a lot of people where now they're taking the job people could have had, right? So now you got engineers who can qualify for those jobs because they got education in, in engineering and they can know what artificial intelligence consists of. So for me, I always feel like if you look at the statistics, most educated people make different decisions than those who are uneducated because they can find a job doing something. So education, job, resources, and things like that amount to a success story for those who feel like there's hope. When there's no hope, mm -hmm. these kids don't think about anything but the moment. I always get people mm -hmm. this scenario because I think sometimes it, it clarifies your things or add clarity to some things. If you go to the zoo, we're talking about a lion as a species, right? And you go to the zoo, a lion is in there chilling. He just, you know, loping around. He's not trying to jump through no fence and none of that kind of stuff. You go to the zoo, a lion jumping through the hoops, doing tricks, just, just, you know, give him an apple, banana, you know, he's fine. But if you go to Africa in a while, that lion is hunting every single day. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't been domesticated. He know anybody gonna give him no food. So he has to do whatever he can do to survive. And that's why he behaved the way he behaved. So in the inner city of Baltimore, I'm not comparing no one to an animal, but I'm saying the behavior to me is symbolic because they feel like they gotta survive. They gonna do whatever they gotta do to survive because they don't see or think no one's coming to feed them. No. Right. I survival totally get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're always in survival mode. Oh. At the end of the day, people have to feed their families, you know, and do what they have to do to make it to the next day. Like, and even like we got a, a squeezy problem. I have a small concern because I don't want to necessarily dismiss the behavior and the disrespect that comes from some of these kids out there who feel entitled. But then when you have people out there that's bagging with signs, to me, the harassment is almost the same, although the temperament is a little lower. But we have on one end of the spectrum, you got kids who are trying to do something that maybe not needed done because most people got cars, they don't need their windows clean. We got, you know, automatic squeezing in our vehicles, right? But then mm -hmm. you have a white guy who's an addict or whatever, out there begging for money, you know, and at this point you become an enabler because you give him money to feed his addiction, not food, right? But mm -hmm. these kids, some of these kids really be hungry. Some of them don't, you know, and, it, and, it, and we don't, it's not like there's a lot of jobs here. Baltimore don't, is not known for producing or manufacturing anything. We got, I think, last time I checked, we had two Fortune 500 companies, which was Chivo Price and Under Armour. I don't know if they still qualify for that. But we, we don't have a major plan here. I, I mean, Amazon just started coming and giving people jobs. But there are no jobs around here where everybody can say, well, you know, I'm going to quit this job, we'll get another job. It is jobs, but not for the vast majority of people that really need them. Right, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in, the, in the urban community. So I understand why they go do what they do. Now we have a choice to accept that or accept them selling drugs or robbing people, right? You know, it's like the worst of two evils because they're going to do something if you look at the scenario I gave you about the lion. They're going to find a way to survive until we right. give them something to hold on to and hope. Our school system is the poorest. We don't have technology, we don't have the equipment. We don't we, have AC. We don't have air conditioning. We don't pay our teachers mm -hmm. what they deserve. So, like, kid can't go to school hungry, but 
Some of them will go to school just to eat. They go there just yeah. to eat. Mm -hmm. so it's fair reality for our people, you know, and I think the politicians mm -hmm. need to focus on making sure education is paramount and primary. And then I think a lot of other things will fall in order because once a person is well-educated, they can get other jobs that they qualify for. So this year is a huge year for America. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, people, you know, people say that, but I, I'm, I don't know if 2015 wasn't bigger because he should never got elected then. You know what I'm saying? But now we know what he's capable of doing. So now everybody like, you know, we right. got rid of I, I, I'm like this, and again, I always use metaphors and proverbs to explain or define or defend. So it's almost like saying in a bad relationship, you letting a guy in that you know beat on women. You know he got a history of beating up his girlfriends, right? And y'all think that he's going to change. So we give him a chance, he come in, and as soon as he get in, he slap him. And like, oh, no, well, I mean, it was different because she said something about his mother and the other girl said something about his children. No, this guy beats women. He's not going to change. So just because right. he's in a different position or, or, or title, that, that's who he is. Everybody thought he was going to help bring money, but everything we needed to know about this man was in his record, right? right? It was consistent. So now it is important that we remove him because right now, I mean, think about it. When he's removed, his people are still going to be rebellious against the person that they didn't get because of what they want. Like, we didn't do that because we wasn't hostile. We, we, some of us, anyway, believe in democracy. We know we're a nation of laws, and we want everything to go the way it's supposed to go. But when you got people at the top cheating, what type of message does that send everybody else? Because now you put all this hard work and dedication and trying to be normal and do everything the right way, but the same people who set the examples are doing everything the wrong way, what do you teach your kids, right? So, you know, Kamala Harris, I, I mean, her sister lived in my building. I mean, she was always one of my favorite senators before she even ran for president. I liked her goal. I liked her ambition. I thought that she meant well when she was having these hearings. You know, I got a chance to see her defend the Constitution and do everything that's meaningful and, and, and with a purpose. Um, but I do know politics change people. You think about Obama, you know, he was the first black president, right? Did our lives really change? Probably not a lot. We was hopeful that everything that we thought would come to fruition because of a black president, but he was the president of the United States, not the president of black people. And I understand right. that minority in this country, a lot of us don't vote, don't pay taxes, so we really can't change things on our own. But I believe a lot more could have been done. He had a democratic house and senate for two years of his eight. So a lot of things that they was trying to do, he they wouldn't let him do because of the fact that, you know, they was, I guess, hating on him. But I'm hopeful that, you know, again, this electoral college thing, which a lot of people understand, Willie chooses the president. So right now, in a state like Maryland, I think we might got like four or eight electoral votes, something like that, which is small, right? But we're a Democratic mm -hmm. state. So most of us will vote Democratic regardless of who the president is. And then you got those West Belt, West Belt states and, you know, Green Belt state, whatever they call it, like, you know, they're the ones that really matter. The Michigans, you know. The swing states. Yeah, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Um, those, the, the Californians and New York, because they hold a lot of um, electoral votes. And I think I was talking to the lady who ran for governor. Uh, I forgot what state it was. And she was, like, saying 33,000 people determined the outcome of the election last year. In terms of electoral college, right? 
Because mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't show up for Hillary like they showed up for Obama. Now, right. I think with Kamala being on the ticket, we would like to see history be made. But see, I'm not in favor of keep trying to make history, you know, because we still talk about the first black. You know, we still, why are we still talking about that? The first black person to do this, the first, because at, the, at some point, if they ain't gonna let us in, we gotta force our way in. We need to be in, right? We right. need to get the table. I, I'm optimistic that Joe Biden has a lot of um, black pedigree, you know, in his assignments due to he was with the best president ever for eight years. I think his mind is in the right place. I think his heart will follow because he wants to make some tough decisions. I think she would definitely help bring a lot of people, black people, back to the polls. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's, speaking about race, um, there have been memes and images circulating on social media that she's pretending to be a black American. So they have the images with her and her parents. Her mother is um, Indian. South Asian, and then her father is Jamaican. Right. So, so what do you think about that? Well, it depends on where their descendants are from. So, mm -hmm. if you think about Obama, you know, having a white mother, right? Father mm -hmm. from Kenya. Yeah. He's born an American, so that's one, you know, disqualifier that he's American. And wherever his father is, then they say that's what you is. So, if our father is Jamaican, and you look at Jamaican descent, where they come from, where Jamaicans come from, they all come back to the origin of black people. So right. I don't know how you disqualify that. If you go to Asia, if you from Hong Kong or you from uh, Japan, you still considered, you know, an Asian, right? You know, and yeah. if you come to America and you're born here and your father messed with a white woman, then you're an Asian Caucasian, right? You know, <laughs> right? You're Asian. Yeah. I just think education has a lot to do with that. People not knowing. Yeah about nationalities and race and, and, and social media is undefeated. You can't be social media. Uh -huh. <laughs> but that was the whole thing where it was like, you know, as soon as Biden announced his pick, it was like, you know, this, everyone kind of, you know, puts their opinion out there. And so a lot of the times the opinion is just based off of superficial things. Like it's not based off of her track record or her background or what she's done. It's like how she looks, you we know, a white president forever. So it don't even matter what she did prior to her getting selected to be his running mate. The fact of the matter is, is she qualified to be a vice president? And if something happens to him, will she be a president? I say yes, just based on the merits of how she behaved while she was a senator. So for me, you know, I was in favor of um, Hillary Clinton and her running mate. Because I'm a Democrat, you know, why? I don't know. I was told I should be a Democrat, right? As I get older, I realized, like, you know, Shit, I mean, what's the difference? I mean, we still losing. And I mean, again, as I said earlier, um, not to throw shade, but like, you know, sometimes it's not even about race as it is about real leadership. In 2015, I'm from Baltimore. We was a part of history that probably no other city could, you know, could fathom. Like, we had access to a black president, a black attorney general. We had a black mayor, a black police commissioner, a black state's attorney, mm -hmm. a black council president, a black sheriff, and we still killed more black people than any other year other than 1993. So it wasn't about complexion to me more than it was about leadership, you know, and culture. So we need to change some things around because you say, oh, well, we need some black folk in there. Things are going to be different, but we had black folk in there and nothing changed. 
So sometimes you got to look at yourself and say, what are you willing to do to make those sacrifices and those changes? Because if not, we can't keep acting like if we get a black person in a position of power, things going to change. Because sometimes they just mm-hmm. don't. You know, I mean, you got I do think, though, one one big thing that comes out of this though and especially like we've been talking about it a lot like representation does matter and like you said like if it was up to if it was up to the republican party we would always have white old males in power forever right that's who started Mm -hmm. the whole thing called democracy for them you know when you think about when the civil war happened and you know the confederates they wanted to stay in power and they wanted to do certain things that you know, alleviate, you know, transitioning from slavery and, you know, and immigration way back then, you know, the old folk don't want to change their ways. And still to this day, a lot of their kids inherit some of the same thinking. You know, I mean, all of us are almost inherently racist, like racist, I mean, not based on aiming at race. We just was taught that white is white, black is black. But when you have an issue, the first thing you do is look at the fact I'm having an issue with a white man, not a man. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, so if I get in an argument, I can't help but believe that I'm arguing with a white man, not a man, right? You know, racist mm-hmm. first thing come to your mind, I'm arguing, oh, you're in the supermarket, and a white lady, older white lady come there, and she started yelling at you. It's different when a, from an a older black lady yelling at you, but it's just a lady yelling at you. So the human race has been so distorted and ignorant to the facts that you know, we all are human beings, and if we take away the color, we probably would do things a lot different. But color is always the thing that supersedes everything that happens. Which is crazy because, well, that's such an American thing, right? And and Brittany and I, we just had an episode where we talk about race and identity and how we identify. And, and you know, then now we're, we're Americans, you know, and we're living in the society, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> See, Stokey's trying to discredit you. See, I know. He's like, wait, are you? <laughs> no, but, you know, with that said, it's, it's, it's always so interesting because that's, like, one of the first things that here in America, it's, like, it's, it's such at the forefront. And we're in 2020, right? And this year has been, like, since it began, it was just, like, a shit show. It's been like that. And especially when it comes to race. And it's just crazy yeah. that, again... We have something, again, history's being made, right? But then it's like, automatically, people are trying to discredit her and be like, well, she's not Black, or, you know, she, she, she like, who is she? Or, um, I like, people have written, like, crazy, like, um, Think pieces. pieces. Think op-eds, <laughs> right? Where right. They, they just go in on her, and it's like, you know, like, are people who's not the, understanding the our options? Who's the author or the writer? That's number one. Who are those people? Just regular citizens. I'm just saying, I mean, ignorant. Are they, are they, are they people who? Because again, like everybody has the freedom of press. Everybody has the opportunity to write what they want to write, and I understand that. For me, not just because I'm a black man, because I mean, I was a Hillary Clinton fan. I thought that she was a woman that represented a lot of black values. Although she could have done more when she was uh, Secretary of State or when she was a senator, like a lot of different things. But you know, I feel like she was better than some other people when you look at the choices that was, you know, available, right? And mm-hmm. I think they're going to get her way to go. They gave Obama a way to go. They're going to always right. give us a to go, you know? And statistics say that in 2040, there's going to be more black folk in America than whites because we're having more babies than them. 
you know what I'm saying? And we keep going and going and going and going, you know. And I'm, I'm just optimistic that if everyone is conscious about change and they want to see America move in the right direction, we got to give someone an opportunity who wants to govern and not personalize the position. Back to Kamala Harris, there's a lot of controversy around her as well because people are looking at her past as a prosecutor. She was also attorney general for the state of California. And people say that she really embraced the The prison industrial complex. The prison, yeah. Right. But then they also said that while she embraced those harsh policies that on one side that she, she fought against them, so it's kind of like her history has been conflicting. So what do you well, think I, about I, that? I think, I think what happened, and, that, and that's the thing, like people, people think people can't change. Like we're not, right. supposed, we're not supposed to sell drugs forever. Like, I used right. to do that. I used to position myself with drugs. I don't do it no more. I changed my mind. I can change my mind. I mm-hmm. mean, as a state official at the time when she made a decision, she probably did what she thought was best at that time. And then when she became mm-hmm. a state senator and realized that from, you know, a global perspective or a universal perspective, whatever it may be, that it's time to do something different because that don't work, then she probably changed her mind. I mean, you know, think about the men in the mandatory. We thought that, like, well, they thought that giving guys 10 years for 50 grams of crack was okay. But then you can have five keys of coke and don't get the same amount of time. Whoever made that decision just was thinking about locking people up. They wasn't thinking about reform. And they were thinking about white and black, because that's, that's... Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So when you color code the law and you try to put things into perspective, to me, it gets very dismal because now you're operating out of, you know, bias, you know, and, and racist thoughts or racist intentions. And then when you try to figure out what happened, look at the people that was a part of those decisions. Well, nobody black in there at the table. I'm like, no, we don't need no mandatory minimum. Like... I'm not against black Republicans, but I know the majority of the people, you know, that are Republicans, you know, don't believe that a person should get the, the hand that they really need. You know, it's like, okay, take care of yourself, we take care of ourselves. But how can a black person say that when for 40 years we were taking care of y'all and now we're trying to take care of ourselves, y'all still won't let us do that. Right. So I think right. if given the chance, with the support, you know, hopefully we have a, a Democratic uh, Senate, like we got a Democratic House, things will change and some of the things they want to do will get done because, you know, I mean, you will have more people, I'm telling you, man, people have so much anxiety every single day in this country now, like never before, suicide, everything is up in terms of mental health and things like that. And it got a lot to do with how people are living their life. This mm-hmm. president is almost like a dictator. Everything he wants to do is illegal and benefits just a small fraction of people. There's only 3% of rich people in the world. The other 97% is supposed to be middle class or lower class. I even think you're rich or you're not. I don't look at nobody in the middle because they don't have the advantages, you know. It's the same as being poor. So if you have it or you don't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I like to say that, you know, if you got a certain tax bracket, oh, we middle class. But what is, what is middle class? Right? What is that? What does that look like when you got people... An upper class that's so far beyond them. You know what I'm saying? You spoke about Inner Harbor, Fells Point, Federal Hill, Silo Point, wherever. No, we don't have an Inner Harbor problem. We got an inner city problem. 
And if you invest in a city, like you said, and change the complexion of the culture and give these people hope, you know, then you'll start to see people live and behave like those who live in Ann Arbor. I mean, I'm on both sides of the fence because I come from one and I live in the other because, you know, I understand what life and liberty and happily consist of, but everybody can't afford to move. So they stuck. Right. And if they could mm -hmm. see the other side, they would invest in that, but they can't. So I think talking about her as a black woman who was elected or selected by, I mean, selected by a white man to be his vice president, I think it's twofold. And again, we don't know his intentions, but we do know his intentions. He did that to get the black vote. But did he do that because he wanted to make sure that black folk knew that he had our best interests, or he did that because he wanted black folk vote? Right. Are you hopeful? I'm very optimistic. I think right now, because to your point, now, you know, sometimes like, you know, again, parables, metaphors go hand in hand. But David and Goliath, right? you know, if you're a Christian, you remember reading those books. And some of us have, some of us haven't. But, you know, you know, David, you know, you're trying to defeat the Goliath. You know what I'm saying? Who would think you could do it with a slingshot, right? You know? Right. And I'm saying, mm -hmm. you think about everything that needs to be done to defeat this president by going to the polling booth, but now with voter suppression and, and all those things that's going on with mail-in ballots, it's just like, is it going to be a circus? Because, we, you know, there are two presidents in the last 50 years that actually won the popular vote but lost electoral college. That was Al Gore and that was Hillary Clinton. You know, is Donald Trump trying to do everything he can? And will they make sure that the votes are counted and, you know, help to a higher standard because it's such an important election. No one wants him back, you know. And I mean, everybody, mm -hmm. I mean, now the number one priority is not even the economy, it's the coronavirus, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He got the ball yeah. in a major way because he kept thinking everybody was attacking his presidency. And <laughs> he had enough information or trust in the people that work for him to follow, you know, their intuitions or their lead. And now you got a hundred some thousand people that's dead, you know what I'm saying? And it's so out of control when in the February, if he would, left everybody that Obama had in place to deal with this situation, instead of taking everything personal, we would have had a head start. Right. With your background and how you're very involved with the community, activism and all of that, what is your suggestion on what, <laughs> what is your suggestion on what people should be doing right now, especially like young people? Um, well, for one, I think a lot of young people should really take heed and respect um, the CDC guidelines about social distancing and taking the COVID-19 very seriously because everyone wants to be normal when we're not living in normal times. And right. there are a lot of black people or colored people with pre-existing health conditions who don't have health insurance, who don't go see a regular physician and those things. And most of them may be asymptomatic. They don't know what that is. But I think a lot of young folk need to be engaged and concerned about their health and well-being and doing anything they can do to weather the storm and to be fine, whether it be a vaccine or a cure, whatever you want, to get things back to normal because they're the ones that are going to be contaminated and taking this virus back to their grandparents or their mothers who otherwise can't afford to even be attached to it based on pre-existing health conditions. Right. So, and then I think you know, a lot of young folk who are conscious and woke should be very optimistic and engaged and being a change they want to see in their community or 
in their environments, you know, like doing something positive at the beginning, back, being the homeless, educating themselves, trying to be more entrepreneurial, you know, a little more um, Renaissance because nostalgic ways, you talk about the old white folk, those things keep us trapped, you know what I'm saying? I read an article today, a guy said, man, education teaches us to work for somebody, you know, it'll teach you how to be an entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. People spend so much right. money college, getting going in debt, getting a degree to work for somebody. Mm-hmm. So no, no, no. Right. I work for myself, but yeah, but you got to pay the loan back first. Mm-hmm. The loan back, you got to mm-hmm. save money. But have you ever thought about going there and saying, this is what you need to do to work for yourself? No, they don't teach you that, you know? And a lady I was talking to last night, her house burned down, and she's been there 34 years, and she might lose her job. But if she took that 34 years working for herself, it wouldn't matter. So that's why I believe in generational wealth, telling time my children, try to find something that you're good at you know, master that and work for yourself. Because then you can determine your schedule and where and where you want to go. Because, I mean, when and where, opposed to you being threatened, I'm too old to be fired. So, you know, like at the end of the day, like, you know, (laughs) I'm too old to be fired, you know, but. Yeah, I think the goal is to have like multiple streams of income. Even if you work for someone to have another source of of money coming in. Because right now you spoke about the statistics in terms of poverty and unemployment. And in a city like Baltimore that doesn't produce or manufacture anything, we're in trouble. We're in trouble because now these kids who once had an outlet, whether they be um, working at a fast food restaurant, then the fast food restaurant is closed, right? Right. So now they cut their staff by three quarters. So you got 25% of people still got their jobs, right? Restaurants, they didn't spend millions of dollars to be a carry out, right? But now, they operating out of carry out. They got space they don't even use, can't use because, you know, of this pandemic. So this has affected everybody, everything. And there's no telling if and when we'll go back to the way we mm-hmm. were. But it just is a reality, you know what I'm saying? And a lot yeah. of people are ready to cope. How do you, well, so what are you currently working on right now with like your businesses and, and what, how has that shifted because of the pandemic? Um, well, for me, I was I was I was trying to oh, I try. I was doing my best to open up a music studio, consult, no, a consulting management marketing firm, which consists of music studios, data art, music, I mean, movie uh, screens, movie theaters, and things like that. You know, we give people the opportunity to invest in their craft holistically and be happy with the environment that we present. So when the pandemic happened, I realized that wouldn't be financially feasible or conducive to my overall plan because I'll be wasting money. But now mm-hmm. I decided to go with, you know, a smoothie, a healthy smoothie sports um, lounge where people can, you know, get a smoothie, watch TV, watch sports. But even if they close it down, we are able to still stay open and provide a minimum amount of food for people in that environment. It's right below a, a housing complex. So I still think it's a good idea. And then when things open back up, we already be and go more. Um, and this, you know, really hit my marketing and my consulting uh, company on steroids to a point I can service people outside of Baltimore. And right now, today, you know, later today, I'm doing a, um, a live um, consultation on building your brand. You know, a lot of people don't understand what that means. And people put me in the right. box because I'm so good at music, but they don't know that I work for a company. I help build that brand and turn them into, you know, a 34, 33 store to a 40 store within several years based on marketing and branding, you know, 
and advertising and promoting that company holistically and organically, you know, and people don't know how to do that. But I just use that same skill set I had when I was in the street because it's all the same, it's different yeah. games. Same thing, you know, when yeah. you can get someone like right now, if it's an amico, it's a gas station on this corner and a gas station in that corner and a gas station in that corner, what, what's the difference? They all sell gas, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody who is trying to buy, you know, if you say, well, man, um, the consumer, who is he going to choose to buy his gas from? It got to be one of the three. So when then you market your, your gas station, why would he choose y'all the three? Because you got to have something that makes him come in there. So if you got a regular gas station, then he probably going to go to the store that got cigarettes, milk, chips, and all that kind of stuff, right? Or was a pretty young lady in there from St. Thomas. If you see somebody like Joe, she at the retail store, and I got a chance to go buy some jeans from her or buy some jeans from Herman, I'm going to go with Joey. All that's a part of marketing. All that has mm -hmm. like a psychological effect on how you deal with people. You know, if you go to a store and you got some jeans on, and I'm like, wow, I can not necessarily be disrespectful, and I'm not being facetious, but if you go in there and say, yo, you know, I can get a crush on and a pair of pants, I'm going to go there. Opposed to me going there to look at this huge dude that's intimidating and telling me, yo, these jeans, yeah, they, they rough, they, they all right. You know, so it depends on marketing. So that's what I'm interested in, making sure I got the most successful, conducive, long-term company in Baltimore where I can empower and hire a lot of minorities, particularly black people who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to work for someone. Yeah, awesome. What keeps you, um, what keeps you motivated? What inspires you? Well, again, we did, I didn't mention that my mom died from HIV and before she died, she said never give up. So that mantra has stuck with me the entire time since she's been gone. And that keeps me going because I want to be able to, you know, prove to her that her son did what many people thought I couldn't do. And more importantly, to show my kids that anything is possible because you know, my legacy will be more than a hashtag. You know, I don't want to be just a hashtag. I want to have a body right. and go beyond just the scope of social media. You know, some people leave here. Yes. I mean, they might not have been able to achieve certain things, but what, what did they do while they was here? You know, what type of impression did they leave on people? Right. Going, you know, and, you know, sometimes in Baltimore, you think about death all the time. Like, what would your friend would be like? Would people really be hurt? Would they be sad? You know, and you get a feeling of how people would feel about you. You know what I'm saying? People don't think like, yo, how would this person feel if something happened to me, right? Other people mm -hmm. know like, yo, I mean, shit, they're going to pull out a little liquor and they're going to go on with their business, you know? And yeah. we still traumatized mm -hmm. and stigmatized by violence these days when someone gets killed. You're like, oh, for real? Like, oh, what's the name, brother? Well, that was my little man. Man, it's time the game come on. Mm -hmm. I just told you somebody mm -hmm. died and you didn't talk about playing basketball. Because right now we are immune to it so much that we don't really move no more. And there's no grieving counselors on the corner that you can go to and talk to because you don't need them no more. These people are so accustomed to it. They think it's going to happen. Now women are becoming, you know, beat. You know what I'm saying? And it's just sad. You know? And for me, it's like mm -hmm. trying to be a difference maker. She spoke about the community. You know, um, and now I have to digress and really get myself together because I have always went hard for Baltimore. And I'm not saying Baltimore didn't go hard for me because they didn't know my intention. But I already know what is needed to fix Baltimore and it's not a politician. And the sad part about it is that most of us who know how it work wants to help, 
and we done gave out all. I know I have, and I'm tired. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I'm not tired of helping people. I'm tired of people not letting me help. And the thing about mm -hmm. it, they resist your help and call you when they need you, you feel like you're being used. And they want you to do it for free. And again, as I alluded earlier about the financial crisis of Baltimore or, you know, how much money that I lost if and when I was running for mayor, I mean, I don't know how much a man get paid. I don't. Even, I never took into consideration the salary, but I just mm -hmm. that job will give people an opportunity to see who you are and say, "Damn, what he do?" And now they can go back to where he used to do to what he's doing now. And a mother who has a son and say, "Baby, you don't gotta do that," because look at this. And he might not want to hear that, but that's still the truth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I wanted mm -hmm. to dunk because Jordan was dunking. I just couldn't jump as high. I'm going to shoot threes because Stephen Curry is good at it, right? We need somebody to show us what what, what can be done in order for us to mm -hmm. win. And I mean, it happens a lot. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned not just being a hashtag. Because in a previous episode, we talked about fake activism. Because we see that a lot on social media. So I guess, what would your advice be? for people in the movement that are using the platform to push it forward and how to not get the message lost. Cause that happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people turn, you know, these moments into movements and that's how you know who is real. You got people mm -hmm. who turn these moments into opportunity for themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the movement. Yeah. Gets lost. And for me, it's never been about me. Everything I've done over the last five years in terms of um, philanthropy, community activism, has been for the city of Baltimore and the citizens. And although they might not appreciate it, they might not care, I mean, I sleep good at night because for one, for one, I'm doing my purpose, which is to help people and liberate my own people to a point where though they safe, healthy, healthy and successful. And a lot of folk now with these fictitious platforms, you, you know, you, you, you can be on Instagram, you can buy followers and think you're famous, right? And you have an audience and then you misuse that platform to a point where though you mislead other people. It happens all the time. And a lot of you with trust. So people trust you based on what they think you have. And I don't mm -hmm. know if Kanye got a billion dollars on we broke. I don't know. You can say on social media, oh, he got a million dollars, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, and then come find out when he filed his taxes, he owed, right? You know what I mean? He in debt. <laughs> but mm -hmm. yeah. I think that if, if a person is conscious enough to step out there and try to invoke change, for people that he loves and respect, then he, his intentions should, should be good. If your intentions are not good, you will, you will, it will, it will come out. But for the most part, it's like, you know, I think that, you know, like just Black Lives Matter, we always matter, but now we are a little more conscious because we start to come together. And one thing we'll say, like, you know, um, racism has always been prevalent. It just started getting filmed, you know what I'm saying? And they always- right, right. You know, I've like, always said that, yeah. Now just getting filled, so uh -huh. now you can see it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I'm in favor of anyone or any group of people that has the right intentions on helping and moving our agenda forward on a consistent basis. Baltimore doesn't have, in my now, in my, I mean, to me, to my now, <clears throat> a group of people that are ready to sacrifice everything for the betterment of the city. Meaning that if it mm -hmm. means go to jail, get hurt, 
Yeah, we know. Because they're provocateurs everywhere, right? And I seen that during the last demonstration down here after George Floyd lost his life. And I want to be clear that we're not going to tear our city down because we need the city, right? But let's just tear down the rules. Let's tear down the institutions internally of the systemic racism, you know, and oppressions and things like that. Let's tear that down because the infrastructure yeah. don't have anything to do with that. Right. Yeah, you know, well, we tear that down. Yeah, I understand that. But then after we tear that down, we still don't get our problem fixed, right? Let's figure out how to tear mm -hmm. those institutional rules and regulations and outdated um, ideologies down and move people in there who are going to do right in those positions. Because, again, we are a nation of laws. If, you know, we don't have them, we're not safe. We got to worry about current weapons to protect ourselves from thugs or, you know, all these other you know, mean people, and, and they allow them out there. So, I mean, I'm in favor of defunding police because I think some of that money need to go to schools and other resources, you know? And if you invest in these things, then nobody won't be a criminal. You know, they'd be, they'd be this, they'd be that. But if you keep investing in police, because to me, police don't stop crime, they solve it, right? They don't stop nobody from committing crime. They ain't never committing crime. So you using preventive measures, won't you use that money in a good way to prevent somebody from doing something. Police intervene. They don't prevent anything. So right, right. now, Facts. you know, if they outside the baseball game and they do and they stopping people from going in a certain way, you're just delaying the process. If somebody really want to get there, they can get mm -hmm. there. There's more people than police. You know? Right. But we really respect right. police. That's why we don't do what we really want to do. It's more guns on the street than what police is. People just don't yep. want to do the wrong. Naturally. If they really want to say, you know what? After police, we gonna go take over in the harbor. All you gotta do is get. All you need is a thousand people, and you got a city with worth of six hundred thousand people. You don't think there's a thousand people thinking like, you know, all you need is one person to lead them, and they'll be down there looking like they ready to take over the world. But then the police gotta call reinforcement. They gotta call state agencies and federal people to help them out because they're overmanned. And from my knowledge, it's all we gotta be at least two or three police to one person because they can't take a chance of them, of them getting overthrown by that one person or he or she getting her gun taken and that life becomes in jeopardy. So it's all about psychology. But for me, I think, um, you know, if, if in fact everything that we've been doing in Baltimore, these young folks, and if I could tell somebody what to do, it would be invest, you know, in, in yourself first, you know, and again, you talk about these movements, make sure people got good intentions. Don't just be following nobody because it's sound good, you know, like, Black lives do matter, but, you know, leaders lead, you know, and you got to have somebody that you trust, respect, and can relate to, or if not, that's a disconnect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I agree with you that this system needs to be dismantled and we need to create, you know, reform and create a new one. Gun violence is like one of our biggest issues here. I wouldn't even believe that. It's funny because, in the you know, there, but that's crazy. I, I wouldn't think that. Yeah, because people think it's paradise, you know, but it's not paradise for the locals. Um, and, you know, they talk about, okay, well, how do we solve this problem? And people say, oh, let's have more police presence. And it's like, okay, that's a temporary solution. I mean, they're there. You won't have people, you know, that are just openly, you know, shooting guns or whatever. But once you take the police out of it, it's still going to happen. So at the end of the day, like, what is the root of the problem? The, the root is really these kids don't have opportunities. They don't have the resources. So once you get to the root, then you address the problem. Right. You got, you got to do that. You invest in these kids and you will see paradise. 
There's no doubt yes. about it. It happened to me. And that's why I say mm. you can't fix something unless you know how it works. It happened to me. I don't got to look at no mm -hmm. geographic uh, <laughs> look. I don't got to look at no, go through no study. <laughs> I, I right. Know, I'm saying it had, I come from a very dysfunctional environment. My mom used drugs. My grandparents drank. Uncles drank, used drugs. It was very hostile. It wasn't violent. I've never been sexually, physically abused. But mentally, I've been broken. And I end up doing what my father gave me to do. And it ended up being good at it. It took me away for 12 long years. I came home. Again, I saw forgiveness and atonement for from a higher power. I prayed for a second chance to put myself in a situation. And I make tons of money. But that don't make me happy. What makes me happy is helping people. I don't know how to be in Baltimore. I can be anywhere. But, but now I'm getting tired and it's not making sense to me to expose myself and my happiness to a city and people who don't want it. Now, there are some who do want it, but I can help them in moderation. I don't got to permanently be doing these things because the results I'm seeking, I won't, I won't get because the oppressors are still in power. They look like us. If you got a black person who don't want to change, and he keep me all in the way, he keeping us oppressed because he won't move the needle because it benefits his agenda. Right now, I don't have one. I want people to win and be successful. That's why, I mean, I take time out let me make sure she thought I'm going to be late, but to be on these podcasts because the message is very important. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To me, yeah. to get the message out there because, you know, oftentimes in Baltimore politics, the message don't, don't match the message, right? So that's a disconnect. And people mm -hmm. get reflection confused with success. We are happy to have a black person in position of power, but what different do it make if they're not doing right by us? So you might well have a white person there and you won't be mad. But you'd be mad mm -hmm. if a black person don't get it and he's not doing right. And he, like when I see a black police beating up a black guy, like what is you thinking? Like, I mean, what is, why, don't you know if you wasn't in their uniform, they'd be beating you up too? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that these right. guys don't deserve to be reprimanded and apprehended, but I'm saying, why are you doing what they taught you to do with, with that man? That we got that stuff from them. Beating and, and hurting each other, like that, that didn't come from us. I come from them. They did that detain us, and now we're using it, you know, to really infiltrate and, and demonstrate on how to contain a situation. And now they killing us, you know, they choking us out or shooting because they're in fear. Prime example. I don't know. I think everything in Saint Thomas is paradise. Mm -hmm. so, so you tell me different because I don't have any experience. So if I go over there, it's a culture shock. I just fight with a gun. Like what the hell? Like you know, I thought they was mm -hmm. over there, pretty women, and you know. <laughs> Right? Reggae and rum. Yeah, so they like got guns. Right. So that's how police people they come to the city. They don't know how we behave until they really see. They see they see on the news, and it's all bad. So they ready to kill on sight. Right. They believe in the night. Right. The, the media is painted about us. They never had no. Uh, they don't. Mhm. Mm and they don't value their lives at the end of the day. We a piece of property. Which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do want to, because you mentioned something and we're like, you know, coming close to the end, but I want to ask you, especially with your, your, your whole story and, you know, you just, you just said it right now, like you've gone through so much, like mentally, like how have you taken care of yourself? Um, I probably haven't, haven't taken care of myself as good as I should because a part of me um, still makes those sacrifices for other people. But I'm getting there, like, you know, the fatigue 
is not hasn't set in. You know, they they say fright or flight, right? You know, and yeah. I'm saying at this point, I'm saying to me, um, you know, I, I work too hard to stay the same, and some of the hardest decisions I made wasn't about me. Like honestly, you know, and I have shared this with people, you know, on different platforms. This is probably the most happiest, healthiest, successful I've ever been in my entire life. But I'm not feeling it because of my constituents or my friends and everybody else who's still stuck. And that bothers me and I can't disconnect myself from that because of what I'm passionate about. But everybody else doing so easy. When they get a few dollars, they gone. LA, Atlanta, they gone, you know. And, and, then uh -huh, I, yep. and I'm like, man, wow, you love Baltimore that much that you're gonna stay there with that toxic behavior. You know, you can help Baltimore from anywhere, you know. And the idea is starting to really you know, become um, a little more concerning to me because I want my kids to be able to be happy and successful and not necessarily um, be forced to deal with certain things, you know. But, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an easy person to get along with. I mean, I don't really need that much to be happy. You know, like, I mean, I'm not big on one thing or another. Like, you know, I've been very blessed. But I, I don't I don't think that um, it's something that I'm doing wrong. I think it's something I'm not doing right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you could be doing something totally wrong, eating wrong, you know. But you, you don't got to be eating wrong. You, you're just not eating right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, you can eat pizza ain't really that bad. You might be eating, you know, a veggie burger, but you're not eating a salad. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying. Like, so for me, it's just like trying to find out, find a balance. As I said before, when Kobe passed away, I was so depressed, man. You know, and then the, when the coronavirus happened, those two things made 2020 like like already just flush it. This 19, 21, 22, and when my kids ask Dad, what happened in 2020? We don't nobody want that. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> like in the history books, they should just skip over twenty twenty. Because I mean, people might say, "Well, why would Because not only did the pandemic affect everybody, I mean, you know, the election, the everything, just so dismal and so sad, you know. So, you know, but um, I'm I'm happy though. You know, I'm gonna make some real good decisions in the next coming weeks and months. You know to try to solidify myself, to be in a position where though I'm very happy, you know? Mm -hmm. So where can people support you? Um, where can they follow you? Um, well, they can follow me on social network. My Instagram name is The Stokey Project, um, the same as Twitter. And on Facebook, mm -hmm. Stokey Kennedy. They can also log on to my website, stokeyproject.com, to see the many things I'm doing for artists, I mean, in the community and all other things of that nature. I mean, you know, um, and hopefully, you know, you know, they'll find something on my website or on my social network platform that's engaging enough for them to, you know, want to partake in something I got coming up, you know, so, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that, that's just the hope. I mean, I'm going to do my best. I don't like to use the word try to continue to be healthy mm -hmm. and happy. That's all I want. I won't be happy, but I won't be healthy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be successful. That that's you know, that that varies because you can be successful by having your own apartment, right? You know? Yeah. You know, There's fact. different levels. Yeah. So for me, people define it differently. Right. Yeah. For me, it's just being healthy, 
happy and successful. And the rest can like, you know, can miss me. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Anything that you want to leave our listeners with? You guys are doing a terrific job. I think that we need more platform and more conversations, open dialogue with people so they can have an opportunity not only to tell their story, but listen to stories that can benefit them short or long term because that's the thing that's missing conversations. We're not having enough conversations about race, politics, you know, um, relationships and so forth. And I think once we start to do that, a lot of wounds will start to heal because people don't have nobody to talk to, you know. And from a, um, a social perspective, social network has given people platforms who probably don't deserve it, but it has helped them, you know, in ways to galvanize people and start things that are trending. And we talk that way, right? But I think mm-hmm. we need more conversation, more people to experience when our things work to try to diffuse some of the, the temptation and the negativity that's starting to really separate us from each other. You know, I'm not against nobody white, green, or yellow. I love everybody, but God made me black, so I love my skin, I love my people, and I don't know, you know why, after all we've been through, they don't like us. I mean, you'll think they didn't know we, you know, we did everything. We built this country, they mad at us, but. Um, but that's it. Just love yourself, love each other, and y'all guys keep doing what y'all doing to spread love and having these positive conversations. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you taking the time out um, to sit here and talk about your projects and your upbringing and everything in between. Um, this, I'm, I was really super excited for, about meeting you and doing this interview. So I just want to say thank you and we support you and you are very inspiring. I know you keep saying I'm not successful yet, but um, I mean, I, you yeah, know, you're definitely an inspiration I, to many. No, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I just want to do my best so people can learn from my mistakes. That's all. Because people think, you know, when my mistakes are free. Dad's going to cost them. But if you can learn from someone, I think you should because it gives you an opportunity not to do what they've done. And if you can learn from them in a good way, then do what they're doing because you might, you know, reap the same benefits, you know. But I'm glad to come to St. Thomas. It's so fun. I was going to take a few days. But now you say things closed, so yeah, yeah. Um, Joyce connects us, so have a real cool guy. Yeah, so let (laughs) me know. I'll definitely let you know where to go. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was telling him. I'm like, oh my god, this is St. Thomas is like one of my favorite places ever. I go there a lot, but Mm -hmm. you know. Similar to what you just said, this right here was the whole reason why we wanted to start this podcast because there is so many similarities within our cultures, within people that you no- normally you wouldn't, like you said, you had your perception about St. Thomas, you were about to go to this mm-hmm. island, not really knowing, but then just even, you know, being here and listening to this and hearing Brittany, like you have a different perspective, you know, and you're going into something. It's the same thing with like how I want people to view Baltimore, like, you could come here. It's a great city. There's so much happening. You know, there's people like Stokey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can't see. But <laughs> you know, that are really like, that are really out here and making Baltimore look <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, I, I, I love Baltimore. I mean, we have a very rich heart. We have some very talented people. And if we can find a way to elevate love and dismiss hate and create opportunities where everybody can be informed and engaged, you will start to see change. But what happened is the paradigm shifted, not necessarily due to the economy, but due to the culture. The culture shifted when they removed people from the communities who would give back and do things. And 
you know, technology start making everything so fast. So now y'all got y'all y'all got beautiful hair. There's no more straightening combs. While you straightening hair, y'all having conversations. Everything is like so fast. The microwave, no toaster, no up. Everything you know is so fast. No washing the clothes in the bucket. I'm not mad at those things, right? But they shouldn't replace normalcy in terms of the things that we grew up on, right? And yeah. now there's mm-hmm. a new there's a new chapter in life. Everybody wants things instant. Success don't mean money, though. You know what I'm saying? Don't mean money. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So you can successfully complete a project and you're successful at that, you know? But mm-hmm. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, um, you know, things will change. We just got to get through this. And right now, this is this is something that everyone's affected by. You know, this yeah. Thing, so it's not a black thing, a white thing. But unfortunately... There are a lot of frontline workers that are black who have pre-existing health conditions, heart disease, asthma, you name it, right? Who can't mm-hmm. afford to be contaminated? Because who do you think they're gonna look at the first you go to the hospital? This person is sick with what insurance, this person don't have insurance. You know, you know, so right. but just keep doing what y'all guys doing. Invite me back anytime. I appreciate you. I look forward to meeting you here in St. Thomas and thank you. Yes, I'll be in Baltimore once this pandemic clears. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Talk That Talk Uncensored with Joyce and Britt. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on all streaming platforms. See you next week.